Romans chapter 8. The messages since I've returned have generally been geared to what I would call the life of hope. And this one is not an exception. It's called Saved in This Hope. As you know, we have moved our communion service up one more week. So that means we'll actually have it on Easter Sunday. And I have a particular message in preparation for that. So we shifted gears a little bit. But Romans chapter 8. We are finishing Romans. I'm still on track to finish Romans. And we're doing that by going into Romans 8 to its end, both on Sundays and Wednesdays. So Romans chapter 8. And we'll entitle this message, Saved in This Hope. Saved in This Hope. Passages for your own perusal, if you want, would be not only ones I'm reading today, Romans 8, 18 to 27, but also Romans 5, 2, 4, and 5, going backwards and going ahead in Romans 15, 4, and 15, 13. Those messages together, or those passages together, should form a very hopeful thought in your mind. So, greetings again, greetings to listeners also in Florida, New Mexico, Ohio, Mississippi, Tennessee, many other places, and I've heard from many of those places recently. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, picking up where we left off the past few messages, I want to read my translation of these, this passage, Romans chapter 8. In verse 18, approaching the climactic phase of Romans and the closure of our treatment of Romans, the epistle for the present time. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for by my accounting, Paul writes, the sufferings of the present time of crisis. We've seen that as the incompatible intersection of two ages, the evil age now invaded by two divine missions in which we participate as the first fruits of the new creation. An agona is what it is, an arena of contention, a gladiatorial arena or theater of war or athleticism, whatever you want to use the metaphor. It is a time of present time of crisis, and it means sufferings. But by my accounting, the sufferings of the present time are not worthy of comparison, he says. There's no even scale here. You don't put on one side the sufferings of the present time, and on the other side... The glory that shall follow. The glory that shall follow is an everlasting weight of glory, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17. There's no comparison with our light, current, momentary affliction, which in perspective, that's what our sufferings are right now. However deep, however profound they seem to be to us, they are an, a light affliction, which is but for a moment in comparison to the glory that shall follow. A lot of things are asymmetric in the word, including the grace of God, which weighs a lot more than our sin, and including God's election to glory, which weighs a lot more than his rejection. And so therefore, by my accounting, the sufferings of the present time of Christ, as Paul said, are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is imminently to be apocalypsed or revealed in or to us. Both work, but in us actually is the primary meaning here. Apocalypsed in us, meaning that we anticipate our glorification and the glory of God bursting forth from within us 
including a bodily resurrection. For the creation, he says in verse 19, eagerly awaits, again this word, the apocalypse, the Greek word apocalypse, of the sons of God. Now that means the manifestation of God's eschatological Israel, the sons of God being the Israel that are eschatologically transformed. Notice this in verse 20. We dealt with these in previous messages, which I recommend you listen to. For the creation was subject to futility. That means that God made the creation incapable of independent existence. Its dependence is upon its creator utterly and totally. So much so that the creation cannot sustain itself. The universe is not to be called God, nor is it to be considered ultimate reality. Those who consider the universe to be God or call God the universe are worshiping and serving a God who is subject to decay rather than the incorruptible creator of all things who is to be blessed and is blessed forevermore in Romans one twenty-five, We are part of that creation and as such we too are subject to futility and that means that we cannot save ourselves by our own power nor can we even save ourselves by our own will. This is where a lot of people fall off the train or jump off the train because as Happened in John 6:66. Many turned back and followed Jesus no more. The reason for that is he kicked out from underneath people, not only their own power, but their own will in salvation. For in John 6:65, he said, no one can come to me unless the father draws him. It is not a matter of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And that is a little bit offensive to some people who followed Jesus up until then. They turned away from him at that point. And it's because, again, he kicked out the last prop. He stormed the final citadel of the human will, which people put too much stock in. But the creation was subject to futility, and so is the human part of it. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, will you also go away? And Peter gave the right answer. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, we can't will otherwise now. And so, again, this is all related to God's plan in verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility or frustration, not willingly. And this refers obliquely to the fact that the creation has no will about its status, where it is, and how, and no will about how it can recover from this. And that includes the human element of the creation. But through the one who subjected it, That's God, the creator, subjected the creation on purpose. That's what it means in Genesis language to say it was without form and void, void and without form. That simply means that the creation of itself is not capable of sustaining itself, even as it was not related, it was not responsible for coming into being in the first place. God is the one who calls things into existence that had no existence, and God is the one who raises the dead to life as we celebrate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just next Sunday, but every single waking moment of our lives. So the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but through the one that should be capital O N E the father, God who subjected it with the expectation. Now the expectation here is God's expectation, which we will fan out a little bit, his hope as it were, that the creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to decay. 
This is according to as the, the physics doctrine of the second law of thermodynamics, slavery to decay, into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This means though you are children and you are heirs of God, that you will have a glorious freedom that is yet future, a glorious freedom that goes along with your glorified bodies, which are imminent. Verse 22, for we all know, or for we know, that all the creation, now Paul makes it very positive by using the word pasa hecatesis, pasa hecatesis, which is sort of like Revelation 5.13, pan katisma, the whole of creation, that's all of creation in all of its times, God is present to every era of history. God is present already to your future glorification. And so the expectation that he has has to be taken as a figure of speech. For we know that all the creation, and that again, that's the span and the scope and the horizon of God's redemptive action, all the creation in all of its times, including a little element of that creation called humanity. It's kind of humbling, isn't it, that we are part of a universal sweep of God's redemptive and reconciling and rectifying work. For we all know that, for we know rather, that all the creation, pasa hecatesis, laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs until now. And this, of course, means all creation in all of its times, including now, not only Paul's now, our now verse 23 but not only that is not only is that so on top of that we those who have the first fruits of the spirit that's you and me that's the best definition i know for the church which i prefer to call the messianic community in the world many call themselves the church but the true church are people who join to christ through the cross of christ and by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, wherever they're found. And so it is those who have received the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the, we are also known as the proleptic new creation, or a preview of what will be universally true, that all creation will be under the headship of Christ and transfigured and transformed by his grace and glory. So those who have, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's the body of Christ, Christ corporate. We sigh deeply in ourselves. We also share the creation's sighing, groaning, even birth pangs, awaiting the new creation in all of its full and, full and glorious splendor. We sigh deeply in ourselves. Now, this expresses the sufferings of this present time and our suffering with Christ, which must precede our entry into glory, even as it was the case with him. Ought not Christ to have suffered, as all the prophets have said, and then to enter his glory, he said, to the slow-witted, yet unawakened, not woke disciples in Luke 24, 26, and 27. They only woke at communion, which is next week. So they'll be joining us next week, all those disciples. They sigh deeply in themselves. We sigh deeply in ourselves, awaiting eagerly. Now, if God subjected the whole creation in his expectation of its glorification, then we actually are sharing God's expectation here. 
in the expect or awaiting eagerly the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship. The adoption is what he's talking about here. The full privilege of our adoption as God's children. That is the redemption of our bodies. That's our physical bodies redeemed. In the meantime here, this is where we'll pick up the strand now for today's message in earnest. In the meantime, we'd say, during this clashing juncture of the two ages, in which we better have on the full armor from God, we better be alert and vigilant. We, be, we better be eternally vigilant and attentive and alerted. We are to be, in this church at least, it's my responsibility to make sure that you are woke. Awake, you sleepers, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That means he will shine on you with his universally saving significance and in the splendor of his grace and glory that outweighs the sin and shame of our humanity in Adam. Thank God. Salvation is not a symmetrical thing. It's asymmetric. Grace weighs a lot more than our sin. Glory weighs a lot more than our afflictions. For it is in this hope. Now, this is in the meantime. While we wait for the redemption of our bodies. In the meantime. And I would say during the clashing juncture of two ages. We've studied that a little bit in Romans 12, 1 to 2. Studied even more so in 13, 11 to 14 of Romans. Now Romans 8, 24a. The first part of the verse says, For it is in this hope that we uh, were saved. God accomplished our salvation, but in the experience of our salvation, it is in this hope that we are saved. In what hope? In the hope of the redemption of our bodies. In the hope of the glorious apocalypse, a, a universal apocalypse of the glory of God. In this hope, we have been saved in this hope. In this hope refers back to the last phrase in verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. We could say the ransom of our human bodies now subject to death and decay, then freed from the slavery of death and decay. We are Waiting this. God has saved us into this hope. Hope is the sphere into which he saved us. It's the thing that we live. It's our breathing air that we live and that we breathe. It is a living hope. And that's important. It's animating. It is living because it has come about through the living God. Hebrews 9, 14. Luke 20, 37 and 38. It is a hope that's actually shared with the living God who has subjected the whole creation to futility, or that is, to no independent existence with the divine expectation that the creation itself will be liberated from its universal state of decay. The universe, which is immense beyond all human reckoning, is all under this slavery to decay. With the divine expectation, that's a divine expectation. It's as if God relinquished his own omniscience 
and put himself into the position of having to hope with us. And he hopes with us and the spirit groans together with us. And that's where prayer comes in. We'll deal with prayer. Then we'll deal with providence, preservation, and promeity. Then we'll be done with Romans, except to translate it in an expanded translation. That's at least our treatment for now of Romans. Therefore, for us to have this hope is to share God's own expectation, as it were. Now, I say God's own expectation as a metaphor, as a figure of speech, because, of course, he's already present to our future glorification. God, there is no era of human history that God is not present to. There is no place in the future or time in the future that God is already not present to. He's present to our glorification, but he also puts himself in a position, relinquishing his own omniscience, as it were, in order to hope with us. And that's why the Holy Spirit hopes with us, prays, intercedes. Without the Spirit, there is no prayer. Without the Spirit, there is no mission. Without the Spirit, there is no hope. Without the Spirit, there is no love. Without the Spirit, there is no effectual intercession. Without the Spirit, there is no church. There is no mission. There is nothing except dead form and a form that denies the power of godliness. That's all there is left without the Spirit. So thank God for the Spirit. So this agrees wholeheartedly with 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter 1.3 is a complement, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, to this statement. There, Peter wrote this wonderful statement, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his Great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. We are saved in this hope. God has according to his mercy, not according to your will, which is subject to futility with the rest of creation, not according to my will, not according to my power, but according to God's mercy, mercy that he will eventually show to all, and which eschatologically speaking, he has already shown to all in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father, says Peter, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. Doesn't that sound like an echo of saved in this hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in this hope refers, this phrase refers also to what Ephesians calls the one hope. En mia el pidi. En mia el pidi. One hope in Ephesians 4.4. The same hope that's a result of the calling forth of both Jew and Gentile into salvation. Both Jew and Gentile have this one hope. One hope, it's a hope for all. This hope is called the hope of righteousness in Galatians 5.5, which is nothing short of the hope of the rectification of all that's gone wrong in the universe. That's what we hope for. That's why there's still hope. We don't have it all. We hope. We have Salvation, but we have a hope. This hope is called the hope of righteousness in Galatians 5.5. 5. 
It's called the hope of the glory of God in Romans 5, 2. A conflation, or if you put together Ephesians 4, 4 and Ephesians 1, 18, it's called the hope, one hope of your calling. Paul's prayer is that we may have, and by that I mean experience, and that is what Paul means, that we may have hope, that is experience that hope. Paul's prayer is that we may have, which means experience that hope, Romans 15, 4, and that that hope may overflow in us. That, only, that not only means that the hope is overwhelming and it actually transforms our livingness and our way of acting and our way of being and our way of being toward others, but it also overflows so that we are able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with courtesy, kindness, and meekness, as 1 Peter 3.15 says. So this hope is grounded firmly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is experienced and caused to overflow in us by the Holy Spirit himself. He is the same one who raised Jesus from the dead and who resides in our present mortal bodies. Romans 8.11. Check that out sometime. The spirit who raised Jesus bodily from the dead now lives in our bodies. Romans 8.11 again. He makes bodily living, and here's the important thing. This is the main thrust of where I've been going since I've been back. He makes bodily living in the power of the resurrection experienceable to us. I read that word first in one of Moltmann's readings that Margaret Cole, his translator into English, put together a bunch of readings of his, and the word experienceable. God the Holy Spirit makes bodily living in these present mortal bodies experienceable. He makes the living in the power of the resurrection experienceable to us even now, right now, in the midst of the agona, in the midst of our human weakness. But that at the same time, at the moment of the adoption that is the redemption of our bodies in Romans 8.23, that power will be experienced completely and forevermore. As Romans 15.13 shows, that's the overflow of hope is generated by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Romans 15.13 reads this way. Stay in Romans 8, though. It says in my translation of Romans 15, 13, now may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing. In the believing, fill you up with joy and peace. You know what that is, of course, the experience of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and Peace, love, peace, joy, however you want to put it. That's the experience, the present, current experience of the kingdom of God. The experience of the kingdom of God is our experience of the Holy Spirit. That's why we meet for the word, because the word intensifies that experience, recalls that experience, reminds us of that reality constantly. And so again, Romans 15, 13, now may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing so that you may 
overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God does not exist in talk only, but in power. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace, and that righteousness is a faith working by love, by the Holy Spirit, Romans 14.17. And we'll be hitting this a little more and clarifying it ever more in the future. So now we're ready for Romans 8.24b, the second half. However, hope that is seen... That's another way of saying hope that's already realized. Hope that's already realized is not hope. Now remember the definition of faith, which you can't define faith without hope being involved. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not Seen. It's also translated, and I don't think wrongly, hope is the substance of things, or faith is the substance, rather, of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. We're moving into a realm of experience again here, a realm of experience. So, however, hope that is seen, already realized, that is, is not hope. Because who hopes for what one sees or has fully realized? Now, you may hope for a $315,000 muscle car that's been developed recently. You may hope for it. But if it's in your driveway and you got the keys and you're seated in that thing, you're not hoping for it anymore. You've realized it, especially when you turn the key and realize you got 750 horsepower under your feet. You've realized it. And then when you step on it, and hopefully you're not living in a neighborhood where police abound. Hopefully you're way out in the desert somewhere. But you don't hope for something you've already realized. So no, who hopes for what one sees or who has fully realized. So in Romans 8, Paul is referring to a meantime. In the meantime. And as I've said many, many times, the meantime is a mean time. The world isn't fair. Life's not fair. All the rest of the things we have to educate our children in when they come to horrible disappointments sometimes, which to them are horrible, but we know they're just part of life. It's a mean time. Especially those who have been awakened by faith, everything by sight will militate against your faith. And those who live by sight will militate against your faith. You may have hope, but others around you are despairing. And don't let their despair infect you. Let your hope infect them. Don't be... Once you've conquered your own sin nature and your own proclivity to fear... You have people around you that fear that can bring you back into fear again. So don't be overcome by other people's slavery to sin, even if you've been liberated from it in a substantial way. Don't be overtaken by the hysteria of some. Some people live with a calm exterior but an inner hysteria that will break forth any moment when things don't go their way. Don't go there. 
This is the meantime. We live in the mean streets. We live in a time of conflict. Paul isn't kidding when he says you better take up and put on the full armor from God, especially above all the shield of faith that you may be able to extinguish all the fiery scud missiles of the evil one. And they are flying today. Those who aren't experiencing this conflict have already bowed to the satanic missiles. They've already subscribed to the lie. They already call God the universe and a lot of other silly titles. And they're already wrapped in a, in a refuge of lies. And so we have hope. Hope is in a meantime, we hold it, where hope is essential. Hope is essential. Paul is not referring to an eschatology that's fully realized or fully manifested already in history. Though faith is the assurance already of the things hoped for. That's the beauty of faith. It's the assurance already of the things hoped for. Moreover, in one sense, listen carefully to this now. In one sense, faith is the presence already of those realities, those hoped for things. That means, once again, that even now in these mortal bodies that are subject to decay, life may be lived in that resurrection power because the resurrection power is the indwelling spirit. He was raised by the Holy Spirit in Romans 1.4 and Romans 8.11. The Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. The Holy Spirit lives in you, making life rooted in that resurrection and from the power of Jesus' resurrection, experienceable in this very life right now. And so that means, once again, life may be lived in that resurrection power because the resurrection power is the indwelling Holy Spirit. There are speakers who call themselves preachers who speak only as inspirational speakers. There are others who speak in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Their speech might not even be as fancy or as energizing or as much of a so-called pep talk. But it's the power of resurrection. The main idea, and I'm grateful to say that those men who manned this pulpit in my absence spoke in the power of the resurrection. So the main idea in Romans 8.24b, however, is that hope involves an expectation for a future realization. An expectation for a future realization. If some hoped for thing is realized or received and it's in hand or in one's possession, it is no longer expected, but it's had and held and experienced fully. We hope for that, which we have not yet fully realized. This is not to say, however, that in the meantime, we have realized nothing. It's not like hope is a deferred consolation and we just have to wait for everything. It doesn't mean that at all. It's not that we say that hope is merely a deferred consolation. Instead, we have now the first fruits of the Spirit. And we are now the prolepsis 
of the universal new creation. If any person is in Christ, he or she is right now part of that new creation. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. That means we experience the Holy Spirit as he will be experienced more fully then and universally then, even by all creation, where mountains themselves will sing and trees will clap their hands and calves will dance like they've been freed from the stall. A living, animated creation with eternal life. That's what's coming. That's not yet realized. Poets can recognize it a bit and speak from that position, but we think they're weird. So there's still something that is very much, however, in the realm of our as yet unrealized expectation. And that is the universal manifestation of that which occurred in the crucified Jesus when he was resurrected bodily from the grave. Let me say that again. That too might be a central point for us or a thesis if I was writing a theology book. There is still something that is very much in the realm of our as yet unrealized expectation and that is the universal manifestation of that which occurred in the crucified Jesus when he was raised bodily from the dead. In Galatians 5.5, 5, another key verse, we by the Spirit, it says, we by the Spirit. Without the Spirit, there isn't this hope, not a living hope, maybe a wishful thinking hope or a hope that's rooted in fantasy. But that's why this things like the Game of Thrones are so exciting to people. It's fantasy. Because it's usually, if, if you really like it that much, maybe you don't have any hope in reality. You see, someone will say, don't you like the Game of Thrones? And I say, well, no, because I'm a grown-up. But I'll go on from there. Now, let's see. Now, we have the following. We by the Spirit, says Galatians 5.5. 5. We by the Spirit, by faith, wait for the hope of righteousness. That means we, we don't wait for the hope of our justification by faith or justification by the faithfulness of Christ. That's ours by the faithful death of Jesus Christ, not by our personal belief. What we're waiting for is a universal rectification of all that's gone wrong in all of time throughout all of creation. That's what we're waiting for. That to me is ex far more exciting than fantasy which relates to wishful thinking. This is reality, which relates to hope. By the Spirit, we wait for the realized hope, which isn't yet realized, of righteousness. That means universal rectification, the setting right of everything. That even means that God gives what's lacking in perpetrators of evil, righteousness. And he gives what's lacking in the victims of evil, what they're lacking, justice. And the justice that God gives to perpetrators of evil is a saving justice by which they receive righteousness. They're set right. And they confront <clears throat> their victims in a time of reconciliation and forgiveness because of the cross of Christ. That's coming up too. That's something we have to address, and that's why I'm not teaching Galatians verse by verse. But in the spirit of Galatians, I'm going to address questions that are hovering in the atmosphere now in our time. Address the questions, including the aberrations and the distortions of 
Christian doctrine that are alive and well in our own times. I don't have to tell you that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved or follow Moses' law. Paul dealt with that effectively in Galatians. That's not to say that Galatians isn't going to be fruitful for us to bring forth apocalyptic theology. But my definite calling now is one of theology in which we amass thousands of verses that we could never get to by an exegesis. That's what's went kind of changed in my prolonged stay from you. And one of the reasons why the stay was prolonged. And so we, by the spirit, wait, I'd translate Galatians five, five, we, by the spirit through faith, wait for the realized hope of the rectification of everything, the setting right of everything, which happens in the parousia, the coming of Christ. There is no more hope for the full preterist. Therefore, if someone subscribes to the doctrine of what is known as full preterism for the at least some branches of it, there is no hope because it was all done on A.D. 70. There is also, on the other hand, false hope for the pre, post and mid-tribulational rapturists. I was asked recently, are you a pre, post or mid-tribulational rapturist? And I had to say, well, none of the above. And what about apocatastasis pantone? which sets the mind on a whole different track of thinking. So there's no more hope for the full preterist. There's false hope for the pre, post, and mid-tribulational rapturists who are looking forward to something past. There is real hope, however, real hope, however, there is real hope for those who hold to the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and for the U-R-R-R-I-C-C, a prolonged acronym, the universal redemptive reconciling and rectifying impact of the cross of Christ. There's hope for them, real hope. All of these views, incidentally, whether they're dispensational, pre, post, mid, or amillennial or millennialist or preterist or full preterist or partial preterist, listen carefully, all of these views can be reconciled simply by having the eschatological, Christological perspective. There is real hope in Operation Epsilon, which we've introduced for 2019, in the Christological, eschatological perspective. We can fan that out in the future, but let's look at 825 for a moment. But if we are hoping Verse 25, that is expectantly, we are hoping expectantly, anticipating eagerly by faith. Again, there's ekpistios, a very key term in the book of Romans, also found in 5, 5 of Galatians, Romans 1, 17, Hebrews 11, 1, where not seen and hoped for coalesce. But if we are hoping for what we do not presently see, If we are really intensely, eagerly anticipating what we do not currently see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. With perseverance. We don't give up our hope. We don't give up our confidence. We add perseverance to it. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Faith is both the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What is not seen here, Romans 8.25, is the eschatological, final that is, manifestation of what occurred in the crucified and risen Jesus. The moment that spark of life awakened him and caused him to stand up in that tomb and walk through the tomb 
having the stone rolled away for him. That is what happened in that flashing moment. That is what will happen universally in his parousia. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of these not seen things. What is not seen yet is the eschatological manifestation of what occurred in the crucified and risen Jesus, which is namely the reconciliation of the world. What is eschatological reality? By that term, we must mean Christological reality, Christocentric reality. Just as you're talking about soteriological reality or saving reality, you cannot do that without talking about Christ crucified and risen. When you're talking about eschatology, you can't remove that from Christ, who's called the eschaton, the final man, the last Adam, the second man. Reality is Jesus. Whether the reality is soteriological or salvific, or whether it's eschatological or final reality, or whether the reality is divine or human, whether uncreated or created, reality is Jesus. All of reality is summed up in Jesus. This is not seen, however, but faith is convinced of it. Faith is convinced of it. Reality is Jesus. So have a deep and abiding faith that that's the case. Moreover, faith is assured that the universal reality that is Jesus will be seen manifested and experienced by all of created reality diachronically, that is, through all of its times. When? At the future to us, future to us, not future to God who is present to the future, future to us, parousia, or the coming from heaven of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who according to Philippians 3.20-21, to will change the status of our present bodily state, a humbled state, into a glorious form like his own body of glory. And he will do this, says Philippians 3.21, simultaneously when he subjects all things universally and diachronically to himself. The sweep of redemption is universal and diachronic. So, as a side note here, but an important one, because we're addressing the aberrations of our own time, that is, distortions of doctrine of our own time with the spirit of Galatians, the debate about full preterism versus partial preterism is an argument between Christians who say that every prophetic event, including the parousia, had already occurred in history by A.D. 70. And on the other hand, Christians who see A.D. 70 and the events leading to the destruction of Jerusalem as fulfilling many events, that's what I believe, they fulfilled many events that are considered yet future by dispensationalists, pre-tribulationalists, and millennialists of various stripes. The storm of this debate would be stilled altogether and a great calm would prevail instead of this storm, the Lord will say, be muzzled to this storm, I think. It would be muzzled if both or all sides were made to see the distinction between what is eschatological and what is historical. 
that solves it all. That stills the storm. So we're not only going to storm some citadels of false doctrine, we're going to still some storms that are dividing Christians by the right use of the word. Full preterism, as it's called, has effectively displaced the Christ event with the prophetic event of Jerusalem's destruction. In other words, it tends to see Jerusalem's destruction in A.D. 70 as more of an important event than what happened in A.D. 30 in Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection from the dead after burial. Full preterism, therefore, assumes that the coming of Christ from heaven to consummate the glorious universal restoration has already occurred in history. That places much of full preterism in the same category as the enthusiasts in Corinth that Paul rebuked. The enthusiasts in Corinth had a realized, a fully realized eschatology. And so Paul rebuked them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he sarcastically referred to them as already reigning as kings and queens as if there is no agona while he referred to himself as and the other apostles as gladiators in the arena consigned to death and considered to be the off-scouring of the earth. In other words, any theology that denies a present ongoing suffering and an agona like Christian scientists used to do, and there was a lot of those in Vermont when I was growing up, they denied the presence of sickness or sin or anything negative. And so that's denying the agona. Oh, there's no arena of contention going on in the clashing juncture of the two ages. But it's an arena in which Paul himself and the other apostles contended while consigned to death as the offscouring of the earth. Paul compared himself and he said, oh, you're the kings and queens on thrones. Don't pay attention to me. I'm just the court jester. I'm just a fool for Christ. Obviously sarcastic oozing with it but we live in a time that sarcasm is very painful to people so I wouldn't dare to do that I concede however let me concede something give some room here that this may not be a criticism based on an entirely accurate assessment of full preterism in all of its quarters and it's not my intent toward my full preteristic friends and I do have some to be either sarcastic or critical. On the other hand, to aver or assert that the parousia of Christ already happened historically in A.D. 70's events is an error, even though it did involve a coming of the Son of Man, a coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 24, 30. The parousia, or the universal revelation of Jesus Christ when every eye sees him in the nail-pierced flesh, is rather to be reviewed or viewed as a real future historical event. It is a real future historical event, which will make manifest and universally experiential the Christological reality of that which invisibly occurred in Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. A lot of preachers on Good Friday will be celebrating that which was visible in Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. What's important to us 
is what happened invisibly. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. If God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, I got news for you. The world has been reconciled to God. Objective reconciliation has already happened. Subjective reconciliation happens when someone is awakened to that fact and receives that reconciliation for themselves. Romans 5.11. Much more is coming up on that objective and subjective reconciliation. But in fourth gear, let's consider this. Faith perceives what is invisible to human eyes. Faith perceives what is invisible to human eyes in the Christ event. That's what all of Paul's epistles are about. He recognizes with all traditional Christianity that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, and on the third day rose again from the dead, according to the scriptures. These are historical facts. But the implications of those events and what occurred invisibly is revealed visibly in Paul's epistles and will be revealed and manifested universally diachronically in the appearing of Jesus Christ, which is yet future. And so faith perceives what's invisible to human eyes in the Christ event. And faith perceives that which invisibly occurred in the Christ event and that it will be, and hope understands that it will be universally manifested for every eye to see and every being to experience at the parousia. So faith is both the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What is hoped for, according to Galatians 5.5, is righteousness, also known as rectification. When you say you hope for righteousness, it doesn't mean, Paul didn't mean we're hoping for a metaphysical attribute. God is righteousness, the righteous attribute. How do you hope for an attribute? You don't hope for a metaphysical attribute, but for a divine act in which all things are set right, rectified in a perceptible form in reality. And so that righteousness, this righteousness that we're talking about, is the setting right of all that has gone wrong in history with the context, within the context of the rectification of all things and all beings in all of its times. This is the reach of redemption. This is the reach of reconciliation of all things in the heaven and on earth in all times and all of its times in Ephesians 1.10 and Colossians 1.20. This is the horizon that we view from the standpoint not of a high perch, but of the perch of Calvary's cross. This is our perspective and the horizon before us. So Galatians 5, 5, for by the Spirit we are eagerly awaiting the realization of the hope of universal rectification. But not only of universal rectification, our own bodily change, our own bodily change is awaited with eagerness. It's a change that is affected by the same omnipotent power of love by which our deliverer brings everything under his control. Everything under his control, I said, in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our bodily change, in one sense, is the completion of our justification. What's still wrong? What's still not the way God intended it to be? Our bodily state. That's not what God intends for us forever. 
thank God. So we still have to be set right in that wrong. And so our bodies are in need of redemption. So that really completes our rectification. It's a significant part of setting right what has gone wrong through all of creation, including the human element. So faith, again, don't misread faith. Though it is not human faith that results in justification, but the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Christ to death. Faith, gifted to us by the Spirit, is assured of this universal rectification and waits for it. Is your life and livingness the same if you don't have this hope than if you do have this hope? Or is your life, your outlook, your attitude, your disposition, your view of others, your view of all the creation dramatically changed if you do have this hope? I think it dramatically changes. It has to me My whole attitude and disposition toward life is radically changed. My disposition toward people radically changed. My being at ease in this world and yet enabled to fight in the slings and arrows that are fought against me is immensely helped by this hope. Hope has an ethics that I didn't have before. Hope has an ethics of love. It's transformative even in the present. It's not just a deferred consolation, a passive waiting. It involves an ethics, a livingness that's powerful and effective toward others in love. This hope is not a shame because the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's why in Romans 5, 5. Now, I have much more to say, but I'm going to cut it short just for the sake of time and because you're hungry. Some of you. Faith is a remarkable thing. Hebrews 11.1 1 may interpret it, may be interpreted both subjectively and objectively, as I said. But what I mean is that faith is viewed and experienced subjectively as assurance of hope for things. But listen carefully again. Faith is also experienced objectively as the substance of the future being experienced in some meaningful measure even now, though only at and after the parousia will this experience be gloriously complete and permanent, think of it, with never an interruption or intermission that's inevitable during this distracting evil age. How momentary and minimal our experiences of this bodily resurrection living. They are, if we're honest, they're minimal, and they are from time to time, sometimes only momentary. And then some person, as Jesus said, steals your joy. Some attitude or disposition of history, some political bitterness that you hear around you takes your joy. What Jesus said one time, he said, I will give you a joy that no person will ever take away from you. That's the unspeakable joy. The joy unspeakable that is full of glory, that the whole glory of this expectation fills you up so that the joy is far less likely to be taken away by someone else. And it's often people who steal it, people's attitudes who steal it, people under the subjection to sin that you've been released from even. But this joy grows as a fruit of the spirit. Thank God. 
So in closing, consider these things. Faith is the active participation as well as the passive experience of the future in the present. That's another definition of faith. Faith is the active participation as well as the passive experience of the future in the present. How is it said in the word? The experience afforded to those who believe is a foretaste of the good word of God and a sample of the dynamics and the capabilities that will be in full force in the consummation of the coming age as partakers of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 6, 5. It says there that you have a foretaste of the coming age, the power of the coming age, that you're already partakers of the Holy Spirit. Faith experiences the gospel as the power of salvation. Faith experiences the gospel as the power of salvation. And it perceives it in the gospel. It perceives in the gospel the apocalypse of the saving justice of God. While it hopes with earnest expectation for the realization of the righteousness that we're talking about, the rectification of all things being universally manifested in the glorious transfiguration of all of created reality. Now we're going into four PRs, and we'll give you just tracks to run on where we're going after next Sunday, perhaps, or maybe even as early as this Wednesday. We go to prayer in verse 26 and 27. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no prayer, no effective prayer. In Romans eight twenty-six and 27. Please note, therefore, prayer. Prayer will be followed by providence in Romans eight twenty-eight. All things working together for the good, not only to those who love God, but those whom God sees as lovers of God, which is all humanity. Providence, followed by preservation. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then the most important doctrine of all of Romans, promeity, P-R-O-M-E-I-T-Y, that God, God in his very being is God for us. The very name of God has to be God for us. God for us. And if God is for us, not only can who could be against us, but if God is for us, why are you against each other? Romans 8.31. So prayer, providence, preservation, promeity. And then we're done with Romans. Those are the topics, hot topics, to be sure. Thank you, Father. We're grateful beyond expression, beyond our ability to say thank you. Well, this church should just be considered the church of the 10th leper because we're just lepers that are cleansed like everyone else, but we just happen to turn around, go back, and say thank you to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all. What distinguishes us from the rest of the world? Nothing, except we just turned around and said thank you. And Father, today, as cleansed lepers, we turn around. May we be the church of the tenth leper. And when you said, where are the nine? I know what you was in your mind when you said that, Lord. You said, they're on their way. We thank you for this assurance today, Father. May faith in us be experienced literally 
as an experience in some measure of the future in the present, the substance of the future in the presence, in the sense that we experience in some meaningful but not final measure what it means to live out from the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Increase and let overflow this living hope, Father, so that it overflows in ways that we can't engineer or produce, that it overflows in members of our family, in members of our professional periphery, in members of our community, in neighbors and friends. This hope may simply overflow and that it may increase in us, Father, to overcome all doubts and despair. And we ask this, and much more is being asked at this same time as the Spirit who searches the hearts intercedes for us in a way that, Father, you would have it. Let our bodies, for now, be vessels in which the Holy Spirit intercedes for the world and for others through us, as God would have it. And these are often prayers that are unspoken, that we cannot speak of, but we know somehow are being uttered through us to you. Dismiss us now in peace and in joy in the Holy Spirit, Father, and increase the experience of the believing in which we may in turn experience the joy and the peace, even in the midst of this arena of contention. Give us alertness and awareness so that this church, this assembly, this phalanx may be among the woke, those awakened to the universal saving significance of your son and the universal redemptive reconciling and rectifying impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we be so alert to it that we will boast in nothing else but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have been crucified to the world and the world crucified to us. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.